Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 167. We'll continue in the Psalms with a brief summary of chapters 55 through 58 and follow with some thoughts about writing, copying, and correcting. When you begin a psalm with, quote, Hearken, O God, to my prayer, and do not ignore my plea, you know you're in for a heartfelt supplication. Psalm 55 does not disappoint. The poet is in dire straits, beset by enemies from all sides, and his only wish, quote, Would I had wings like a dove, I would fly off and find rest. But this onslaught is particularly painful because the enemies are actually one enemy, and that one enemy is, quote, a man to my measure, my companion and my familiar, with whom together we shared sweet counsel in the house of our God. In elation, we walked. To this traitor and the rest of his enemies, the poet has another wish, quote, may death come upon them. May they go down to Sheol alive. Oh, damn! Who is this intimate who went on to betray the poet? Perhaps he's referring to Achitophel the trusted counselor, and a man greatly renowned for his wisdom and advice. During Avshalom's revolt, Achitophel deserted David to support David's usurping son. It's a real kick in the knackers, bro. Just a real ouchie, bro. There's a common Hebrew expression, Eitzat Achitophel, or Achitophel's advice, which is one of those examples of uh, perjuration, where the phrase starts out meaning one thing and takes on a negative meaning later. Achitophel gave good advice. He was known for it. But the idiom means categorically bad advice. <laughs> Psalm 56 begins with a cryptic superscription, quote, For the lead player on Yonat Elem Rechokim, a David Michtam, when the Philistines seized him in Gat. The incident in question, David trying to go off the grid in the Philistine frontier, only to fall into their hands, inspires hope for the poet, hope in the face of persecution that God will redeem. We've talked about the michtam before. It's come to mean aphorism today, but not in biblical times. But what's the deal with Yonat Elem Rechokim? The phrase literally means the mute dove of distant places, which sounds like the name of a Moody Blues album or a Sufjan Stevens song, but it probably alludes to a long-lost musical term. But for the great medieval poet Yehuda Halevi, the metaphor became concrete in the piyut, or Jewish liturgical poem, Ya'alu le'elef ulurevava, quote, Arise, mute dove of distant places, a voice from distant lands, who calls out from the depth, Raise up your song to the heavens. Halevi's meaning is clear. The Jewish people languishing in exile must raise up their voices and call out for redemption. This piyut is still sung in Yemenite communities at the conclusion of the evening service on the second day of Rosh Hashanah. Psalm 57 begins with another obscure musical term in the superscription, quote, for the lead player Al-Tashchet, a David Michtam, when he fled from Shaul into the cave. Once again, the connection between a specific event in David's life, this time fleeing from Shaul into a cave, and the supplication and thanksgiving that follows is a bit thin. But the recurring chorus ties the psalm together, quote, Loom over the heavens, O God, over all the earth your glory. Psalm 58 paints a bleak picture of the world, of the law of the jungle prevailing over the laws of humans. The poet calls out the leaders of the people, quote, In truth has there been hidden the righteousness that you have spoken, the justness you have judged men. 
The translation comes from Safaria, but it's riddled with editor's brackets. Robert Alter comes right out and says it, quote, The English reader should be warned that the Hebrew text of this psalm from this verse to the end, with the sole exception of the ferocious verses 7 and 11, is badly mangled. As a result, a good deal of the translation is necessarily conjectural or must rely on emendation. A literal rendering of the Hebrew for this verse would be, Indeed, mutinous justice you speak. The translation reads Elim, chieftains, instead of Elim, mutinous. Bottoms up, super chieftain. And the poet picks up on the wildness and savagery with allusions to ferocious animals. Quote, They have venom akin to the serpent's venom, like the deaf viper that stops up its ears. So it hears not the soothsayer's voice, nor the cunning caster of spells. God, smash their teeth in their mouth. The jaws of the lions shatter, O Lord. The poet also likens the wicked to the slime of the snail that melts in the sun. When God moves into action, all the evil schemes will vaporize, and the righteous witnessing this will rejoice. And on that celebratory note, here endeth the lesson. Discussed this explicitly up until now. It bears mentioning that the Tanakh in its day was produced, or shall I say reproduced, by scribes. That is, scribes using quills, animal skins, and papyrus, they would sit at a table or desk, and working from an original, they would hand-write a copy. And this process and the associated technology really didn't change for thousands of years. The earliest biblical text is believed to have been produced in this fashion from before the turn of the first millennium. The silver scroll, which contains the Birkata Kohanim, the priestly blessing found in the book of Numbers, comes to us from the 7th century BCE. The Dead Sea Scrolls, from the 2nd century BCE through the 1st century CE, contains 220 Tanakhic manuscripts. But it's the Aleppo Codex from the 10th century CE that is the oldest known complete Hebrew Tanakh. But in the mid-13th century, medieval European scribes uncovered a disturbing aspect of this process. A diabolical force at work set out to disrupt the accurate reproduction of texts. Tidavillus, the demon of typos. Episode 106 of the Illusionist podcast, hosted by Helen Zaltzman, focused on the doings of this lesser-known familiar who works on behalf of Satan to introduce errors into the work of scribes. And when I say scribes or medieval scribes, I'm really talking about monks. Monks who worked in the scriptorium or the writing room, they were called scribes. And when I'm talking about monks and their writing work and writing rooms, what I'm really talking about are monasteries where, after prayer, Writing was the number one pastime. Monks were busy copying out Bibles and missals and breviaries so that they could be distributed wherever required and demand was always high. Writing, or more like copying, required long periods of intense concentration. The scribe would often pray for the strength and fortitude to complete this holy task and eliminate scribal errors. Record of this can be found in the Incipit a brief comment or prayer on the first sheet of a new manuscript. Likewise, at the end of the job, a brief comment or prayer would be added to the last page, an explicit. 
You can imagine how precision would be especially important while copying the Tanakh, not only because errors and omissions would themselves be copied many times over before it was spotted, if at all. When the printing press was introduced in the 15th century, a single mistake could go viral almost instantly. One such example was described by Ian Chillag in his podcast, Everything is Alive. He referred to what is known now as the Wicked Bible or the Sinner's Bible. Published in 1631 by Robert Barker and Martin Lucas, the Royal Printers in London, it was supposed to be a reprint of the King James Bible, but instead it proliferated a very important scribal error in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. What was a prohibition became a positive commandment, and thus readers were unexpectedly enjoined to commit adultery. It's clear why monks and scribes would ascribe such shenanigans to Titavillus. When it comes to job security, it's much, much better to blame the devil's minion. We don't have examples of this in the Tanakh. No negative commandments suddenly going positive. But we do have some examples where a group of scholars called the Masoretes copied, edited, and distributed what they regarded as the authoritative Hebrew and Aramaic texts of the 24 books of the Tanakh. The Masoretes, or Ba'aleha Masora, meaning masters of the chain of tradition. But Masora literally refers to the diacritic markings of the texts and the marginal notes which enumerate textual details and precise spelling of words. The Masoretes did their work between the 7th and 11th centuries, primarily in the cities of Tiberias and Jerusalem, but also in Babylonia under the Rashidun, Umayyad, and Abbasid caliphates. Their work was exacting and precise. In the first half of the 10th century, Aharon ben Moshe ben Asher and ben Naphtali were two leading Masoretes in Tiberias. Each one compiled a system of pronunciation and grammatical guides in the form of diacritical notes, or nikud, to standardize the pronunciation, paragraph, and verse divisions, as well as cantillation, or way of chanting the Tanakh. The Aleppo Codex I mentioned earlier is a Ben Asher text and is considered by all halachic authorities as authoritative. The Ben Naphtali text has 875 differences from the Ben Asher text. 90% of the differences, or 788 instances, refer to the placing of stress markings and whether the vowel is long or short. Of the remaining seven, Six refer to variations in vowels and accents, and only one deals with consonantal spelling. So while Ben Asher's text of 1 Kings chapter 3 verse 20 spells Yishena asleep, without a second yud, Ben Naphtali spells it with two yuds. Ben Asher in Isaiah 30.23 says, V'natan matar zarecha, so rain shall be provided for your seed. While Ben Naphtali reads, V'natan matar artsecha, so rain shall be provided for your land. And finally, Ben Asher's rendering of Ezekiel 14.16 reads, V'ha'aretz tihiyeshmama, the land would become a desolation. In the Ben Naphtali, it's simply inverted, and it says there, Shmama tihiyeh. In all... There are 1,196,824 letters, consonants, in the Tanakh, including the nine inverted nuns. And the only real difference between Ben Asher and Ben Naphtali come down to an extra yud in 1 Kings and the replacement of a zayin with an aleph and an ayin with a tzadi in Isaiah. That's three, a three-letter difference in a manuscript of over 1.1 million letters. Oh, damn!
But this is not to say that the source text itself was free of the emendations. It was just that once the source text was declared authoritative, subsequent copies were accurate, even if it perpetuated much earlier scribal errors or omissions. Which brings us back to Psalm 58. If you recall the translation I included earlier, I provided the stripped-down version, translating each word literally without any emendation. Quote, In truth, has there been hidden the righteousness that you have spoken, the justness that you have judged men? But the editors in their glory render the translation as follows, quote, left bracket, left parentheses, in reference to Avner's not defending David to Saul when David had demonstrated that he bore Saul no ill, left bracket, viz, or vide set, that is Latin for namely, 1 Samuel 26, 14, right bracket, right parentheses, right bracket, in truth, there has been hidden, left bracket, from your mouth, right bracket, the righteousness, left bracket, i.e. or it s, that is Latin for, that is, vindication, left parentheses, of me, right parentheses, right bracket, that you, left bracket, should right bracket have spoken, left bracket to Saul, right bracket, the justness, left bracket, whereby, right bracket, you, left bracket, should, right bracket, have judged men, left bracket, i.e., that's again Latin for that is me, right bracket. Whew. It provides a little context and then further amends to give depth to the context, but this is no different than what the Sofrim or scribes did during the first two centuries of the Common Era under the rubric of Tikkune Sofrim or scribal corrections. Their understanding was that the ancient reading must have differed from that of the present text, and the inevitable changes they claimed were done initially by the first scribe, Ezra, from the period of the return in the 6th century BCE, and they were just following along. And how many passages were actually changed is subject to some dispute. By one count, it's 11. By another, it's 7. And a third says 13. But what remains is a moment in time, a historic process, where up to that moment, the text had the potential for errors, inaccuracies, allusions to false gods, anthropomorphisms, dropped words, unseemly or obscured passages, dittography and haplography, where a word or phrase or line begins with a similar string of letters or ends with a similar string of letters, causing the eyes to skip forward or backward, and then suddenly, the door closed on the fungibility and fluidity of the text. And from that moment on, the text was airtight, locked down harder than any Wikipedia page on Israel-Palestine, policed by a cadre of committed scribes who were cognizant of every jot and tittle. No more scribal shenanigans. And yet there are 15 passages in the Tanakh where some words have an additional mark above them. Are the marks to indicate please erase, or are they a mnemonic device to help the verbal ancient remember a homiletical explanation? There are also four words with, with one of the letters suspended above the line, and then there are nine passages where there's a letter nun that's inverted. What are we to make of all this? If nothing else, it shows us that not only is the Tanakh a sausage, but also how that sausage gets made. Which is something that I guess a lot of folks, though they eat sausages happily, are even happier not to know. If you like what we heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. 
Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 168, when we continue on Psalms with chapters 59 through 62.